Good evening, church. We will be in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. I invite you to turn there. That'll be our primary text. Printed for you also is Proverbs 16, 32. We'll get to that, but we'll start in Proverbs 25, 28. We've been going through, in recent weeks, Proverbs 10 to 31, which present a less cohesive unit than Proverbs 1 through 9. And so... We're tackling one verse, topic of self-control this evening. As I was preparing, I frankly was surprised that I felt more inspired and attractive to live with self-control than I did feel weighed down and convicted of not living in self-control, which is a fight for me as it is for anyone. But as I experienced that and realized that, I thought, this is great. This is my hope for us this evening as well, is that we would not just, certainly not even feel burdened and pressed down for not being self-controlled, but that we would see the attractiveness and the desirability and want to live with self-control more. Let's pray to that end before we read our passage. Speak, O Lord, and show us the value of self-control. Remind us why we need it. And make clear to us how valuable and essential it is to us. Reveal the flourishing life that it offers. And then strengthen us to pursue self-control in every area of our life. So that we may enjoy life abundantly. As you offer to us through Jesus. And so that in doing so, we could testify to your goodness. As we live differently from the way that the world and our worldly desires offers us to live. Speak, O Lord, and encourage us and teach us in all this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, followed by Proverbs 16, 32. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 16, 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. How do you respond to the topic of self-control? How does it sit with you? How do you feel when someone brings that up? I think there's probably two ways and really just one, but let's talk about two of them. Does it feel oppressive to you? Like there's a fun hater going around monitoring your joy and trying to snuff it out through self-control and discipline? Or does self-control sound like life-giving to you? Maybe you imagine a well-lined basketball court where your long-range three-pointer can clearly be identified as three points. That's self-control. We got the designed areas. Or maybe it's a castle where the rolling meadows that associated with the property are well-defined by rocky, sturdy walls. And then the castle itself has a well-defined moat that protects it. And the people inside where they can be having banquets and sleeping peacefully. Is that how you think of self-control? How do you think of self-control? However you think of it, it's probably going to determine how you respond to the text. Whether it's oppressive or whether it's life-giving. 
Proverbs 28, excuse me, Proverbs 25, verse 28 reveals to us that self-control is an essential trait. And it paints a, a pretty bleak picture, honestly. But it doesn't start out that way. A man without self-control is like a city. Before the city is broken into and left without walls, it is a man is like a city. And cities are known to be glorious and have tremendous power and uh, capabilities that no spread out peoples would be able to have. It gives the picture of a, a fallenness from glory. City was once something that was great, but now the walls have been broken into and it's left without walls. It's a pile of rubble. What happened? What happened? Well, the main focus is a, a man without self-control, but let's look a little bit more about this city. An ancient city uh, depended on its walls for its well-being, and the city allowed the people of the city to have a bunch of things, but two things stand out to us, an economy and justice. And the walls of a city allowed it to have an economy. It allowed people to gather into a central location rather than being spread out all over the land. The wall allowed for some safety and, and uh, a set place for people to bring their goods that they were making, craftsmen would come to receive the goods and make the goods. And as craftsmen and more people would gather, then it became a desirable place for families to live. Schools come up, uh, people are there. So then the arts would flourish. And as people are there, we need government and politics. So you have a city and what is impossible without the walls and a set location of a city becomes possible. There becomes a, a kind of flourishing that was enabled through the walls of a city in ancient times. And that would be an understanding as we read this passage. The second thing, justice. Uh, we read about cities of refuge throughout the Old Testament. Those cities of refuge allowed for mercy, not only justice, but they prevented families from feuding endlessly. If someone was killed by manslaughter, accidental murder, they could run to a city of refuge and seek shelter and protection. And thereby there would be... Um, eliminated this eternal ongoing back and forth between the families. Justice would be allowed, but also mercy is enabled by a city's wall, setting up barrier where the people within there can live by a code of living. And so there is this, this goodness, this uh, measure of glory that a city with walls is allowed. And so when we look at Proverbs 25, 28, it, it, it's a bleak picture, but let's not forget that it wasn't always bleak. A city is a good and glorious thing, but a city broken into and left without walls is in fact a very negative and bleak image. That is a man without self-control, created with this potential for glory and good, and yet fallen somehow from that potential. Sounds familiar? Even the language of fallenness reminds us of the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Created, good, fallen, bent towards sin and rebellion from then on. The wall is the key to thriving. Self-control is the key to thriving for man. And so what if we ended here? We want to thrive. We want to flourish. Therefore, by golly, be more self-controlled. Let's do it. Amen. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. Is the Bible saying that? Okay, yes, in part, it is. We need self-control to flourish. That is absolutely there. But is that the sufficient and the total and the main thrust of the message? 
No. We're missing something if that's the message that we preach to ourselves, to one another, and if that's what we read from Scripture here. It says that a a man without self-control is like a city broken into first and then left without walls. Can we really keep ourselves from a single break in our walls? Three things I want to highlight for us from this passage, considering the rest of scripture as it applies to self-control. First, I want us to heed the warning of lacking self-control. I think it's pretty clear from this verse that we've looked at already. But two, I want us to recognize the sensibility of getting self-control. It's a reasonable thing. We want self-control. Let's go get it. And then lastly, see the prize of life with self-control. I'll be going a little bit quicker perhaps than I intended. But as we heed the warning of lacking self-control, we, we recognize that we all have broken walls. Our walls have been broken into. And as bleak as this picture is in verse 28, how much more bleak is the positive image or the positive spinning of this verse here? Uh, a man with self-control is a city not broken into and with walls. I say how much more negative is that because how much more impossible does that seem to us? To not only construct a wall that would define us, defend us, but then to maintain that wall at every turn. And yet, isn't that what we're tasked with doing these days according not to the Bible, God's word, and our church, but to the culture? The language of self-control without a realization of our need for salvation and the provision of salvation in Jesus, the language of self-control becomes the language of self-salvation, self-definition, self-protection, self, all of these things. And what a burden that is. I mean, how much more bleak is that than admitting that we are broken and need something and someone outside of us to repair us? Do we really want to depend on our own self-control to build up and then maintain forever our wall? Ephesians, uh, in many places in the New Testament, makes it clear that uh, we are all bent, we are all incapable, and we are all enslaved to some power outside of ourselves. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were stuck, we were bent in this way. This is the, the state that from which we have fallen into. We need to heed the warning of the lack of self-control. We need to admit that we have a need, a kind of repair that we cannot do for ourselves. Heed the warning of lacking self-control. Let's recognize the sensibility of getting self-control. Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6, let's see if I can find my bookmark to there. If not, I'll turn. Uh, talks about the value of self-control as well. In a passage talking about Um, sexual immorality. He explains the motivation, the desire for self-control. And maybe you've missed it. I missed it when I was reading this until earlier this week. It is not about self-definition or self-salvation. 
Look at the motivation that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 12, for why we should resist the temptations and the passions that we faced. All things are lawful for me, says someone perhaps, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Here it is. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We should not be giving ourselves over to our temptations because God values us so much. He values even our bodies so much that he has united us with him. He cares for our bodies even after they have stopped functioning and are buried in the ground and he will resurrect them as he resurrected Jesus. That is the kind of dignity and value and honor that he assigns to us and to our bodies. And therefore, oh, what an abomination. How could we ever consider ourselves so uh, so cheap and so devalued as to Just give ourselves over to whatever whim or passion there may be, especially uniting ourselves with a prostitute. Far be it from that. No, the motivation is that you are loved and valued. Do you know how much God loves you? Come on now, you are worth so much more. The passage that I was always pointed to when talking about self-control was with Joseph and Potiphar in in Genesis 39. And I, I bring that up because I'd always thought that he was just really disciplined and self-controlled. But if you want to turn there, we'll look at a few verses. I'll, I'll read for us if you don't want to turn. He has the same motivation that Paul describes. He recognizes how valued and loved he is, not in God's eyes, but also in Potiphar, his master's eyes. And that is his motivation for resisting temptation. Genesis chapter 39, verse... Six and seven. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? My master values me so much. How could I betray him and sin against God? There's a sensibility of getting self-control. And on a much lighthearted, more lighthearted matter, we can think of... um, recognizing the value of something changes the way that we handle it. Ever played Monopoly? Ever lost Monopoly money under the couch and thought not once more about it? What if that was real money? That little orangish, dark, yellow $500 suddenly becomes a whole lot more important to move the furniture and find. We change the way we behave towards something based on how we value it. A dandelion in the ice age suddenly becomes a lot more valuable to Sid the Sloth. Just saying. Does this sound like oppression? Does this kind of self-control 
changing the way we behave or behave towards something based on how it is valued. Does that sound like oppressive behavior and motivation? Or does it sound sensible, reasonable, even attractive? Yeah, I want to act with self-control because that's right. I am loved and valued way more than I realized. We want to heed the warning of lacking self-control, but we also want to recognize the sensibility of getting self-control based on our own value that assigned to us by Christ. And then thirdly, I want us to see the prize of a life with self-control. And, and this, this is going to take some imagination. Proverbs, here we go. Let's look at Proverbs 16, 32 for this one. Proverbs 25, 28 uh, uh, paints the bleak picture of lacking self-control. 16, 32 reveals to us uh, the desirability and the, um, the grandeur of having self-control. 16, Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. There is no greater honor. Alexander the Great has nothing on the person who can rule his desires, his passions, his spirit, as the word is translated here. There is no grandeur greater than someone who can exercise self-control. And why is that? In this life, we need self-control because of the way we have rebelled from that original goodness. And we are now affected by the temptation and the allure of sin. It's not the way it was meant to be. And so when we practice self-control against that temptation, that allure of sin, we are actually living in the way that we were designed to live. We are living with the goodness, the full goodness of abundant life that we are designed for and that Jesus said he's come to give back to us. There is a grandeur, a goodness to living with self-control. It's going to take some imagination because we don't know life without self-control, but can we imagine what life without temptations to sin would look like? C.S. Lewis has uh, a space trilogy. And I think it's necessary for us to turn to science fiction to get this kind of imagination. We need to go to another planet, to another world that has been, in this fictional writing, untainted. Uh, not tainted. Untainted probably isn't a word. Not tainted by the rebellious desires of greed, of I want more, I I want, I want, I want. And so there's a man who travels there. We don't really care about how for a person right now, but he's there and he meets this other rational being and he's talking with them because this rational being is content and he's asking, so how does, how does this work? You, you mate only once in your life, but don't you want to mate more than once in your life? You, you're content with this food that you have. You don't want more. So here's the dialogue that they're entering into. Let's see if we can imagine the grandeur of self-control. What I mean here specifically is, can we get a glimpse of just the goodness and the richness of life, being content without wanting more. 
self-controlling our desires as a good thing, not oppressive. The human says to this make-believe character, Achrosa. So we're going to call it that. If a thing is a pleasure, a being wants it again. He might want the pleasure more often than the number of uh, young that could be fed. It took this Chrosa, Hyoi, a long time to get the point. You mean, he said slowly, that a being might uh, do this pleasurable act not only in one or two years of his life, but again? Yes. But why? Would he want his dinner all day? Or want to sleep after he had slept? I do not understand. Well, but a dinner comes every day. This love, you say, comes only once while the cross lives? But it takes his whole life, says the cross. When he is young, he has to look for his mate. And then he has to court her. Then he begets young. Then he rears them. Then he remembers all this and boils it inside him and makes it into poems and wisdom. Human says, but the pleasure he must be content only to remember. Krosa says, that is like saying, my food I must be content to eat. I do not understand. A pleasure is full grown only when it is remembered. You are speaking, human, as if the pleasure were one thing and the memory another. It is all one thing. There is joy in contentment and self-control. Can we imagine self-control as being so joyful and good and not oppressive? But of course... In this life, we're not on this foreign planet. We're not in a fiction sci-fi novel. Novel, excuse me. We're here. And here, there will be fighting to fight against the temptations, the desires that are real, that are present, because we have fallen. And we must exercise self-control, lest our walls be completely broken into and us as a city laid to ruin. And... Credit to Tim Keller for this illustration from Jane Eyre, but there is perhaps no better illustration of the, the fight and the task, but also the value of self-control that Jane Eyre paints as Jane, the main character, uh, resists the wooing of Rochester, which, whom she has come to love completely, only she finds out he's married. And his wife is in an insane asylum. And we pick up in their conversation there. Jane Eyre illustrates the force of self-control. And she writes of herself, I was experiencing an ordeal. A hand of fiery iron grasped my vitals. Terrible moment, full of struggle, blackness, burning. Not a human being that ever lived could wish to be loved better than I was loved. And him who thus loved me, I absolutely worshipped. And I must renounce love and idol. One drear word comprised my intolerable duty. Depart. Jane, you understand what I want of you? Just this promise. I will be yours, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester, I will not be yours. Another long silence. We're going to get the full dialogue. So there's a, there's a heart of this too. We're going to get the full dialogue. So get comfortable. Jane recommends tea with a gentleness that broke me down with grief and turned me stone cold with ominous terror. 
For this still voice was the pant of a lion rising. Jane, do you mean to go one way in the world and to let me go another? I do. Jane, bending towards and embracing me. Do you mean it now? I do. And now, softly kissing my forehead and cheek. I do. Extricating myself from restraint rapidly and completely. Oh, Jane, this is bitter. This, this is wicked. It would not be wicked to love me. It would, it would be to obey you. A wild look raised his brows, crossed his features. He rose, but he forbore, forbore yet. I laid my hand on the back of a chair for support. I shook, I feared, but I resolved. One instant, Jane, give one glance to my horrible life when you are gone. All happiness will be torn away with you. What then is left? What shall I do, Jane? Where turn for a companion and for some hope? Do as I do. Trust in God and yourself. Believe in heaven. Hope to meet again there. Then you will not yield? No. Then you condemn me to live wretched and to die accursed? His voice rose. I advise you to live sinless and I wish you to die tranquil. Then you snatch love and innocence from me. You fling me back on lust for a passion, vice for an occupation. Mr. Rochester, I no more assign this fate to you than I grasp at it for myself. We were born to strive and endure. You as well as I do so. You will forget me before I forget you. You make me a liar by such language. You sully my honor. I declared I could not change. You tell me to my face, I shall change soon. And what a distortion in your judgment. What a perversity in your ideas is proved by your conduct. Is it better to drive a fellow creature to despair than to transgress a mere human law? No man being injured by the breach. For you have neither relatives nor acquaintances whom you need fear to offend by living with me. This was true. And while he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime and resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling and that clamored wildly. Oh, comply. It said, think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the recklessness following on despair. Soothe him, save him, love him, tell him you love him and will be his who in the world cares for you. Or who will be injured by what you do? Still indomitable was the reply, getting close to the end. I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more unsustained I am, the more I will respect myself. I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this. When body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor, stringent are they, inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? They have a worth. So I have always believed. And if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane with my veins running fire and my heart beating faster than I can count its throbs, preconceived opinions, foregone determinations are all I have at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot. (sighs) Against all manner of temptation, Jane, the character, 
manages to maintain self-control and to remain resolute. And she even does it with the same motivation that Paul ascribed in 1 Corinthians 6. Did you catch it? Still indomitable was the reply, I care for myself. She knows the value that God has assigned to her. She is unwilling to compromise and behave in such a way that does not align with the value that God sees with her. It's, it does us no good to belittle the temptations that she faced and that we face. I mean, some of the things that we are tasked with exercising self-control against are beyond our power and control. That is why it's not up to us to build our wall or to maintain our wall. We are to strive, as she said, but we are to strive as those with the helper whom we have dwelling within us. Who helps us to live with self-control so that we may be filled with abundant life. And so I close with this. As the title of the sermon says, Because of Christ's salvation and rescue from the tyranny of sin, we have been liberated, freed to live with self-control so that we might live in the goodness that we were made for. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we long to love as you love and to see the world as you see it. But we are so caught up and entangled with such a confusion of desires and temptations. Please help us to see clearly the great value you have assigned to us, the dignity with which you have made us and the life that you have called us into and then give us the strength to live and pursue such a life for our good, yes, but for your glory so that others might also see and come to know and glorify you as well. Do this, Father, for it is beyond us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.